Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. It's God's word for us this evening. In early August, we'll continue chapter 16 and also study chapter 17, which is called the High Priestly Prayer. And then we will be finished with our study of John because we did 18, 19, 20, and 21 already earlier. Jesus says in our text, uh, because I have said these things to you, you are filled with grief. Or we could say their hearts were, were overwhelmed with sorrow. It reminds us of the beginning of this whole section of 14 through 17 where Jesus is doing a lot of teaching. And the beginning of that section, he says to disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. So them being filled with grief, they're troubled. What are they in in grief about? What are they sorrowful about? Well, it, it was especially about Jesus telling them that he had to leave them. Jesus had told them so many good things, but they just couldn't get over the fact that he was going to leave. And the grief filled their hearts. It overwhelmed them. They couldn't get past it. And maybe some of the feeling of grief right here also had to do with what Jesus had just told them that we read this morning, right, about the persecution and the hatred and the hostility of the world. Have you ever had a time of, of just overwhelming grief and sorrow in your life? Sometimes uh, when you're not in the midst of the grief or sorrow, thank the Lord, we tend to move on from them. And, and I think God has a way of, of lessening those memories of tough times for us, it seems, but can be a little hard to enter into it again if, if, if it was a time long ago. But, but, but Jesus' followers do experience grief. Sometimes in the midst of, of all the promises of God's Word and the hope and the joy and the blessing that the Lord does bring His people, we can forget that people really do struggle and feel despair and sorrow 
like the disciples do here. And, and, and some, some ways of, of doing church these days, it, it's like worship services have become big pep rallies. Rah, rah, everything is awesome, like the Lego movie song puts it. But you don't know unless you have little kids. And, and of course, we want the joy of the Lord. We want to emphasize the joy of the Lord. But we don't want to gloss over the grief or to pretend like struggle isn't there. The Catechism talks about life as nothing but a veil of tears. And our typical reaction to that today might be, well, that's just depressing. Let's move on from that old-fashioned theology. But the truth is, life is hard. Every house has its cross. I'm convinced of it. There's a reason the Heidelberg Catechism starts out by asking us, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it's because we need comfort. But things don't end, of course, with our grief and sorrow. God works in our troubles. The thing causing the disciples' grief, says Jesus, is actually for their good. And we can be sure tonight that this is true of whatever it is we go through in our lives. Romans 8 says that all things work for the good of those who belong to the Lord. And we've got to be thoughtful and wise about how and, and where and when we share that truth. When someone has just lost a loved one and is grieving and in sorrow, you don't waltz up and say, hey, don't cry, buck up, friend. This is for your good. It's all going to be okay. No. No. There's a time and there's a place and there's a way to speak the comfort. But we do have a God who is sovereign. Sometimes we can see that very clearly how he's working in the grief. Uh, Mark Stephenson is the man who heads up our denominational office of disability concerns. He's a wonderful guy. I, I learned just recently that before he entered the pastorate, I think his last year of seminary, his oldest child, a daughter, was born very prematurely, many months prematurely, and had all sorts of problems. She survived, but she has lived with many disabilities. Well, this changed the course of Mark's life, and it changed the course of his wife's life. She went back to school to be trained as a teacher who works with students with disabilities, and she's been doing that ever since, in addition to caring for her own family. Mark pastored in two Christian Reformed congregations, and now he gives leadership on disabilities to our entire denomination, and he does a great job of it. And there you can see pretty clearly in his life how God brought good out of the grief. But sometimes it's not always clear. We're not given all the answers. We can't always figure out the whys and the wherefores. I don't know why my son was stillborn and why God took him to heaven instead of letting him live with us and his sisters who would have loved him very much. I think he'd be starting cadets this fall with you, Lambert. I don't know. I can't tell you exactly how or why that was for my good. But I do trust that it was. 
I believe God had a plan in it. I believe he continues to have a plan for my life. And that even in the grief and the sorrows and the challenges, it's a good plan. I believe all of us can trust in that. I really, really do. The good in the midst of the grief that Jesus brings up in our text is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had talked about him before, but now, especially in the midst of the disciples' grief, he's reminding them that the Spirit will come after he ascends, and it will be for their good. He talks about the Spirit coming in two different ways in our text. We could say that Jesus is telling us how the Spirit works for the good in the world and in the Word. And the Spirit comes and works for your good and mine in these two ways every bit as much today as back then when he told the disciples first about it. So first, the Spirit works for our good in the world. And this is verses 8 through 11. What's his ministry in the world? Well, we read it. Convicting the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now you could think of convict either as maybe a harsh rebuking of the world for its sin or more convincing the world of sin so that there would be repentance. The second of those seems to be the meaning here. That the Spirit is working in our world, convicting of sin, that's a tremendous, tremendous comfort. Because some of the grief that we have as Christians is when we look at the world, when we read of tragedy, abuse, they are just the most terrible, sickening things that happen in our world. Things that I can't even say from the pulpit because they're so terrible. And that's why sometimes I don't even want to read the news. It's just too horrible. As believers, our hearts are broken by brokenness, by sin, by evil. But we're told that the Spirit is at work in our world, convicting people of sin. Some people lost in sin will be convicted because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And only the Spirit can do that work of convicting. He brings things home to the heart so that people become disturbed by their sin and want to be freed from it. You know, at Pentecost, after Peter's great sermon, people were cut to the heart, we read. And then 3,000 people were saved. I just said Peter's great sermon, but the reality is that was not due to how great Peter was. The Spirit caused those people to believe. He convicted them. He cut them to the heart. The sin that the world especially needs convicting of, and we see it in verse 9, is that of unbelief in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. That's the number one sin. That's the root of it all. That's the issue. Adultery, pride, drunkenness, stealing. There are all sins there. People need to repent of all sin. But not believing in Jesus, that is the hardest sin 
to crack. It's the hardest sin for people to admit. And you know, it's because people take a lot of pride in their unbelief. You ever come across, maybe you know I'm talking, people consider themselves intellectually superior if they don't believe. And you've, you've come across it. Atheists look in pity on us for believing, and they're very proud that they aren't so foolish as to be people of faith. That's a tough nut to crack, but even in the face of that sin, the toughest sin of all, unbelief, the Spirit is working in our world, and there is hope that people will come to their senses and to faith because of the Spirit. John says the Spirit will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness. And this means that from there, he is the one who takes us to Jesus. He shows people Christ's righteousness and how that saves us. Our text talks about guilt, righteousness, judgment. Christ's righteousness is something supernatural that the Lord inserts between guilt and judgment. In legal proceedings, we talked about the legal proceedings happening in the Supreme Court tomorrow, but in in a courtroom, things are pretty straightforward. If you're dealing with with crime and issues, let's say you're convicted of a robbery. Well, you're convicted of the robbery, then you do the time. There's the judgment. We're guilty of sin before God, but before that judgment happens, God adds the provision of righteousness in Christ, and he applies it to us so we can avoid that judgment. And so the Spirit convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness, but then also judgment. And our text refers to the prince of this world, and that's Satan. And telling us this is a reminder that that God will punish sin. And people who do not come to Christ, those who are not convicted, those who refuse the work of the Spirit, well, they will experience judgment according to God's Word. And so in our own troubles and grief in the midst of this world of hatred and hostility to God and his people that we saw this morning, Jesus tells us of the good of the Spirit's work in the world. Before talking about the Spirit's work in the world, I just want to stop and add one thing here and remind us that we not forget that the Spirit works in the world through us. We're called to testify. We read it this morning in verse 27 of John 15. Every conversion and conviction of sin in the book of Acts happened through the instrument of someone who was already saved. Did you know that? Everyone in Acts. And if you can find one that that isn't, tell me, but I don't think you're going to find it. Even Paul, with his bright light on the road where Jesus just knocked him off his horse. I don't know if he was riding a horse. It doesn't say that. Maybe I'm adding something there. But you know what I'm talking about, that Damascus. Well, he was converted through others too, even in that situation. He witnessed Stephen's stoning, right? He was there. He heard Stephen's sermon, 
and, and testimony before he entered into heaven, and the Spirit used Ananias later when he was brought to Damascus. And, and that, that's God's way, by the power of the Spirit working through human channels like you and me. May we be God's instruments today, knowing as we do work and testify that great comfort, that the, the results, the true change, the conviction, it's ultimately on Him, on the Spirit, not us. It's God's work. And, and so God does tremendous good, even in our grief, as we look at the world, because the Spirit is at work in the world as Jesus talks about him here. And the other piece of this is that the Spirit is at work in the Word. And this is verses 12 and following. I have much more to say to you, but it's more than you can bear now. That's what Jesus says. I have much more to say to you. And then he talks of the Spirit of truth guiding them in all the truth. And at least one pastor believes that this must refer to the New Testament Scriptures this section, 12 and following. The Spirit would inspire a new revelation for God's people. The New Testament is God's Word. Well, that's, that's obvious to us from our vantage point. But if you think about it, the disciples wouldn't have been expecting this. This would have been a total surprise to them. They knew the Old Testament Scriptures, believed them to be divine, but God was going to write more scriptures through the Holy Spirit? Some think that these verses not only tell us about the New Testament scriptures, but they even tell us about the three different kinds of writings that would be in the New Testament. There are historical books, doctrinal books, and prophetic ones. He will speak, the Spirit will speak only what he hears implies from other stuff we read that he will speak the words of Jesus. And where are we given the words of Jesus? Well, in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those historical writings tell us about the life and the teaching of Jesus. That history, and there are historical books in the Old Testament too, that history sets our faith apart from other religions. Our faith is not a mythology which is made up. It's not a philosophy which is just about ideas. Our faith is based on historical facts and events. Jesus says he'll guide you into all truth. It's not just the facts and the events, but what they mean that are important. And that refers to the doctrinal writings of the New Testament. The letters, the epistles, Romans and and all the rest, and Corinthians. Jesus died, the Gospels say. Okay. But what does that mean? Everybody dies. Why did Jesus die? God comes to us in Jesus, but who is God? Why did God come to us? Why did Jesus live and die? The epistles tell us the implications of the historical events and facts for our lives. The Spirit will also tell you what is yet to come, verse 13. Those are the prophetic parts of the New Testament. Places like Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Romans 11, 1 Corinthians 15, and especially the whole book of Revelation. We can get lost 
and confused and obsessed about the end times. But basically, the prophetic books tell us God is unfolding a plan leading up to Christ's return one day. We have a part in that plan, and getting that and knowing that will lead to a life of blessing now and for all eternity. Jesus says in verse 14, The Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So the Spirit's work in the Word is for our good, but ultimately it's for the greatest good of all, which is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so whatever your situation today, whatever your grief, whatever makes your heart heavy, cherish the Word because God will show you His goodness through His Spirit-inspired Word. As Jesus showed the disciples God's goodness in their grief, my prayer is that you tonight in your heart would be encouraged and experience the goodness of God yourself through the work and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world and in the Word. Amen.